Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me. I mean, look, it's taken us like 50 minutes, 45 minutes to do this. And I didn't even exhaustively unpack these stories. And he's like, I can go on and on and on. But fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, the prophets, and through faith they conquered kingdoms. Now, once again, Gideon, I already told him, what faith is there? Even though God said, I want you to defeat the Midianites all by yourself as one man. That's what he says. If you look in the Hebrew, he says, go by all yourself and defeat the entire Midianite nation. Can he do it? Yeah, I proved it with Samson. By faith, God can do anything. And so God says, I'll give you a little quiz, pop quiz before you have the major test. Just tear down the altar all by yourself. And he can't do it. He does it at night, he does it with friends, and he hides behind his dad. And you're like, well, that's you. you're not that grave a man. But he did it. He had faith. He could have just said, forget it. Even though he said, for God and for me, he still charged. And so, no, he's not a good role model for your children. But in a way, he's a good example to say, even when you're failing a lot, kids, God's still pleased with that little bit of faith because he makes it in the by faith. Not because he's a great hero of faith, but because he did respond with some faith and God did amazing things with it. Even the for God and for me, God wiped out the entire Midianite army with 300 men. And when you go on and read, you realize he did it because he just made all the Midianites kill each other. Gideon didn't even have to do anything. Barak? Barak comes, he gets a message from God. Like, Deborah calls him down, the prophetess, and says, hasn't God commanded you to go defeat them? Now, Barak is like 75 miles in the north, and Deborah's in the south. And she calls, sends a servant to go up and get him, bring him back down, and says, hasn't God told you? The implication is God's been telling Barak to deliver them, and he hasn't been listening, so God sends Deborah to chase him down. That's not faith. And then when she finds, he's like, oh yeah. He says, but I'll only go if you go with me. Because I don't have enough faith in the invisible God that will give me victory. I need something tangible like the prophetess, a good luck charm. And she says, because you've gone about it this way, which implies you don't have faith, the victory is the glory is going to go to a woman. But then when, and here's the ironic thing, Barak in Hebrew means lightning bolt. And yet he's like hesitating all the time. That's the irony here. But when Deborah finally said, now's the time, go, he finally acted like his name and struck. And he's never mentioned after that. That's his only moment of faith. Yet he makes it here. Samson, God makes it clear, do not marry the Philistine women. The first thing we learn about Samson, he comes to his parents and says, get me that woman, she's a Philistine. My favorite part is that it says, then he went down and talked to her and realized he liked her. That means he's a creeper. Okay? So then he goes down, and he goes down and he hangs out. He never calls him. The only time he calls on God is he kills all these Philistines out of his anger. And then he says, you've given me victory. Now you're going to let me die? Give me some water. And God gives him water. And then you know what he names a spring? He names a spring after himself. 
And this is Samson over and over again. And then he sleeps with a Philistine prostitute. Then he hooks up with Delilah. And yet in the end, and then when he actually prays for forgiveness, he says, God, I'm sorry. Give me strength. I recognize you're the source of my power, but let me get revenge for my eyes. My faith is so I can get revenge. But here's the thing. He humbled and repented before God. And that was enough for him to make it into the book. I mean, the great people like Abraham are good stories about faith, but sometimes when we feel so miserable and self-loathing because we're not what we think we should be, that's where these people come in. I mean, these stories are great stories because it rewards us. Don't make their same mistakes. Because Judges is one big giant spiral down the toilet. But at the same time, it's encouraging that despite the spiraling down, God is still using them. Even though they have a little bit of faith. Now when Christ says, with faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. You know what he means now? It's that. That even if you're not completely selfless, and you still just have a little bit of faith, you can wipe out an entire army. That doesn't mean that if you have faith, you can go move a mountain. Because all those people are operating on a promise. It means that if God has made you a promise that's so big that it feels like you're moving a mountain, even if you have a little bit of faith, it will happen. That's the context. See, we abuse it say, if I have faith, I'll move a mountain. No. And when it doesn't happen, we're like, well, that didn't... No. The mountain is a metaphor to the biggest promise that God could ever make. You think is ridiculous, but if you just have a little faith, it will happen. No problem. And they demonstrate this. Jephthah. Jephthah, this is a hard one for me to find the faith in there. Jephthah is a mercenary who says, I will only deliver you Israelites if you pay me, and I want kingship. And then when he finally goes to God, he says, God, if you give me victory, I will burn my daughter in the flames for you. And he really says, I'll burn the first thing that comes out of my door. But what do you think is the first thing that comes out of your door when you've been at war for a long time period? And he meant it because when his daughter comes out, he burns her. It says that he did to her just as he promised. And you're like, where's the faith in that? Well, when he writes a letter to the king of the Ammonites, he writes about all the things that God has done for them in the past and why this deserves to be their land. And the Ammonites have no right to take away from them. And that was his faith. His faith is that he knew his history and he knew that God had given him the land and not that it was how amazing Israel was. And he said, you have no right to take it because God gave it to us. And that was his faith. And he makes it in the book. Samuel, he's the only one that's like really a lot of good things written about him. The only fault that you can really hold against him is his sons end up doing scumbags, but we don't know why. Is it bad parenting or just their free will? Don't know. But he's off it. But what's so cool about Samuel, he single-handedly brought the entire nation of Israel for repentance. I tell my students, if God can use Samuel all by himself to bring a nation who's involved in bestiality and child sacrifice and pedophilia and gang rape to a revival, then imagine what he can do with a whole group of your generation in this nation where it's not that bad. And that's the example there. I don't, that's why I'm a teacher. The pessimist in me and the realist wants to go to Alaska. But the Christian in me makes me stay here and teach the next generation. And then David. 
David, yeah, great man of repentance, but not really doing some good things. The prophets, and then he goes on and on, all the kings and all the prophets, which pretty much sums up history. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead, raised to life. But others were tortured, not accepting release, to obtain resurrection to a better life. And others experienced mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed apart, murdered with a sword, and went about in sheepskin and goatskin. They were destitute, inflicted, and ill-treated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains and the caves and openings in the earth, and these are all commended for their faith. Yet they did not receive what was promised, for God had provided something better for us, so that they would be made perfect together with us. He lists all the amazing things that they were able to do that defies the laws of physics, and yet all the horrible things that they endured Because of faith. The promise is not that your life will be happy-go-lucky if you have faith. The promise is that God can do amazing supernatural things or He can give you the ability to endure the most horrible things by faith. And some generations speak of great wonders and miracles. And other generations speak of the worst persecution you can imagine. But in all of them, I almost believe that enduring the pain is a far greater act of faith than expecting something amazing. And the world was not worthy of them. That goes back to Noah condemned them by his faith. The world is not worthy of those who have faith. Not because you're such an amazing person and doggone it, people like you. Not because of your intelligence and your skill. But the world was not worthy of them because of their faith. Not works, not obedience, not skills, not intelligence, not track records. Faith. Because they believed that Christ was the superior object of faith. That's why the world is not worthy. Because when you believe in that, perseverance and works automatically comes. You know when we fail to produce fruit? When we're trusting in something else. When you trust in Christ, you always produce fruit. Because a tree that is healthy always produces the fruit that it's made for. And that's why the world is not worthy. For God, yet, 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 they did not receive what God promised. And we made this point in chapter 4. If Joshua had truly offered them the rest that God was speaking of, then why does God keep talking about another today if you enter his rest? And even then, Joshua didn't give them total rest from their enemies. Because Joshua only half conquered the land, and not because of his lack of faith or obedience, because God told him to stop so that the next generation would have a chance to demonstrate their faith. And the next generation failed, and then it was just downhill after that. And so never, ever, ever, ever has Israel really, truly fulfilled the promises of God. 
And yet they kept persevering. The remnant, the righteous, not Israel, the ethnic. Because they believe there must be something better. If they keep looking back and generation after generation after generation does not get the promises, but God keeps proving himself trustworthy to honor the promises in a minor way, then there must be something greater coming. And if they can conclude that pre-Christ, then can we not conclude the second coming after the first coming? Can we not believe that the second coming will truly come if we've seen the first coming? They haven't seen either one, and they make the conclusion. We've seen at least one. For God had provided something better. Jesus, better, 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 better then. For us, so that they would be made perfect together with us. That we are all finally perfected through the same sacrifice. Because the entire First Testament was foreshadowing and pointing towards Jesus. And all of us are looking back at Jesus. And we both meet at the cross to find our perfection. And none of them were ever at the cross. And none of us were physically at the cross. And none of them fully understood what the prophecies were truly saying about the cross and Jesus. And yet none of us could stand up and perfectly explain everything that happened and was accomplished on the cross, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, cosmically, and eternally. And though there is tons of evidence through miracles and prophecies coming true to point to the cross, they weren't there and they did not fully understand it. First Peter says, The prophets longed and searched and investigated to understand the time and the nature and the place of Jesus Christ, and yet did not understand, yet kept preaching the gospel for us. Because they knew it would make sense eventually to one generation. And we look back, not seeing the cross, not fully understanding what happened, and a whole bunch of naysayers who said it never happened. And we both look Back to that. And we are both perfected through the cross by faith. And that's how the first and second testament come together. The cross is the pivotal point in history, and everything swings and hangs on it. And that's the point. Because Christ is better. Why would you want to go to anything else in the first testament? And why would you look to anything that America has to offer you? Nations rise and fall. Wealth is gained and lost. And eventually everything lost. Because if there's one scientific fact that you can definitely hang your hat on, and that's the law of entropy. Everything is falling apart, decaying, and losing its energy. Yet Christ is our eternal, perfected sacrifice. That's what you hang your hats on. And all together. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he'll go on and say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must rid ourselves of every weight. Because we can see God. So many stories over and over and over and over and over and over again where people persevered despite the unseen, despite the persecution, and yet God honored their faith by doing something amazing. 
then you look to those examples of faith, not those great heroes, but those examples of faith and what God did amazing things because they placed their faith in the right object. You then throw off every possible object you could possibly think of and set your eyes on Christ so that your life will tell the same amazing stories. And that maybe you'll have more of Abraham in your life than a Barak and Gideon. And even though you can still please God as a Gideon, you want to know God. And so throw off every obstacle and every object that vies for your attention. Because if they can do it, then we can. Because it has nothing to do with them or you. It has everything to do with Christ as the object of your faith. Because Christ is better than all things. He's just made an argument on a logical level for ten chapters. And now, he just spent an entire chapter giving you experiential evidence. Logic, reason, and experiential relationship. Chapters 1 through 11. Christ is trustworthy. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you are a God who is trustworthy through all the ages. And when we place our faith in you, we can trust, believe, hope, and expect that you will be with us into all the ages that come. Because you promised it. In Jesus' name, amen.